welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Readings bookseller Mari Madison speaks with writer and broadcaster Richard Feidler about his new book, The Golden Maze, a biography of Prague, which was inspired by his experience in the city's 1989 Velvet Revolution. A quick note, as we're still locked out of our studios here at Readings, this is a live event recorded over the internet, so there has been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. Now, to introduce Mari, here's Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Mari Madison. Mari is one of my dear friends. She's one of these women that has made a career out of book selling and knowing a little bit about everything. But in particular, her passion lies in the colder climates of our extraordinary world. She's the type of person that will save her money for an entire year so that she can travel to some snow-filled Alps and marvel at the type of clothes that she can wear, the layers that she needs to put on. I don't understand it. But, Mari, what a treat to have you here tonight talking to the one and only Richard Viber. Welcome, my friend. Welcome. Thank you, Chris. Uh, And thank you, everyone. Um, I am here tonight in conversation with Richard Feidler about his new book, The Golden Maze, which I knew the title of, but for some reason wanted to read off the cover. Uh, Richard needs no introduction, but of course I will give him an introduction. Is a beloved author, broadcaster, and more recently the author of this being his third travelogue biography of a city, wonderful history book, or just story by a fellow traveller might be the way to think of it. Uh, The first, Ghost Empire, took us to Istanbul. The second, Sagalands, took us to a place very clear to my heart, Iceland. And the third, The Golden Maze, is the story of the city of Prague a place I spent an hour in last year and did plan to go back to this year, except we have been foiled by everything. Richard, welcome. And thank you for this book. Thank you very much, Murray. Thank you for having me and hello everyone. Look, The Golden Maze, a biography of Prague. Now you say in the introduction that this is a book that's been more than 30 years in the making. Well, 30-ish years in the making. Can you tell us about when you first uh, made contact with this Prague that would occupy your mind so much? In 1989, I was living in London, uh, performing with a filthy comedy trio that I used to be part of many years ago, doing a London theatre season. Yeah. And as we were doing our season at the end of the year, we were watching all of the police states, the Stalinist police states of Central and Eastern Europe just be weighed down, knocked down by popular revolutions. First it was Poland, then Hungary, then East Germany. And I was sort of jumping out of my skin in London, knowing all this was happening sort of just down the road by Australian standards in Central Europe. And when the Berlin Wall fell, you know, you could see earth moving equipment pulling out big slabs of concrete like rotten teeth out of the ground and people dancing on top of the Berlin Wall and drinking champagne. And and I just wanted to be there so badly. And so yeah. as soon as I could, as soon as the theatre season ended, I, I went with my girlfriend at the time and we uh, went to Berlin first and mm-hmm. from there to Prague. And Prague was just in the aftermath of its own revolution, which was they called the Velvet Revolution at the time because of its largely peaceful nature. And 
it was one of the most moving and uh, profoundly joyful experiences of my, of my life. I arrived in a city I had no, no previous knowledge of. I'd never been there before. I spoke no Czech whatsoever. I had a handful of German tourist phrases and that was about it. We found ourselves staying in this hotel on Wenceslas Square, which cost very little, but was an Art Nouveau palace. Uh, threadbare Art Nouveau palace called the Grand Hotel Europa. Uh, the carpet was threadbare, the wallpaper was peeling. There was a kind of a tatty sinking bed in the bedroom. Uh, with one radio, with one radio station on it, but the whole place was buzzing. Like people were going around everywhere. There was a whole lot of action in the streets. Um, everyone was lovely and friendly and kind, except for the hotel staff uh, and the reception desk, who were all members of the secret police. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, can you slightly talk up, speak up just a little bit too? Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. No, I know. I'm doing the same thing. We kind of fade in. That's. All right, is that better? I'll, I'll speak a bit louder. Yeah, how's that? Yeah, yeah, but that was wonderful. So, yeah. are they these? So, there are very unfriendly hotel staff in this sort of old bit of Middle Europa kind of. Yes, in this in, in this kind of giant gigantic cake of a building that we were staying <laughs> in the hotel, uh, like, and, and I, it became a bit of a sport to have fun with them because they were so incredibly rude. It became. Yeah. Came, became quite good fun. So in the morning, I would go down and say something to the lady at reception who just sort of glared at me like that, you know. Mm. And, and I, I would say, oh, excuse me, can you tell me if it's possible to make an international phone call from the hotel? And she'd say, no, it's completely impossible from here. And I, <laughs> I said, well, is there a, can you tell me if there's anywhere in the city where I can make an international phone call? And she said, you think I spend all my time finding out such things for your benefit? Like that. And so that, that's, that's what the service was like. I love it. That's wonderful. Yeah. And she, she was living the dream of many service people <laughs> all over the world. She was, but, but all the hotel staff were secret police members. They, by, yeah. by, by definition, any place where foreigners would come to stay, the, the lobby would be full of secret police operatives. So you're, you were there just as the regime was falling in a way, but it was still in place, I guess, in a day-to-day -day way that kind of, they were still secret they were still spies. They were still under this Eastern European bloc. Well, that was just it. The regime had fallen. Oh, it had. Marvel, the playwright, had just become president, had made this electrifying yeah. speech, and yet the secret police were still operating. They were still still spying on people, uh, staying at their posts. And so one night there was a huge demonstration that I joined in the middle of Wenceslas Square, an anti-secret police demonstration, and I went up to people and said, you know, what, what, why are you demonstrating against the secret police? It's, aren't they disbanded? They said, yes, but they're still operating. They're still spying on people. And there were worries at the time that, that they had secret gun caches around the city, yeah. the buildings, and were going to fire down on protesters, which is what happened in, in Bucharest mm. in, in Romania. But it didn't happen in Prague, thank God. It was, it was, um, there was nothing really to spoil the joy of this, this effervescent moment except people's inertia to move. It's interesting. What, what you set up there is a wonderful um, dichotomy of, like, of revolution and kind of a slightly cynical continue on as you are. And then I feel that uh, this is such a wonderful book for then going back to describe how that could become the response of, of Pragas. There was... I think the the best phrase for people at the time was was coined by Václav Havel, the, the president, who said that 
the Velvet Revolution was a miracle because it was led by young people. It was led by the students, really. It was the students who, were the, who, who took the most heroic steps of it. And he said, how was it that a generation of young people who were my age and younger at the time had grown up with such a powerful sense of dignity and justice and courage and a willingness to discern truth from official lies and, and, and the courage to take it on, having grown up in such a morally contaminated environment. Because these were young people who'd grown up watching their parents um, say one thing at home and another in public places. They got used to saying one thing and thinking another. The regime made liars and hypocrites out of people. Uh, they had to sing the party song. And if, if you wanted your kids to have a proper education, you had to uh, be nice to the party, be a member of the party. Anyone who had a whiff of dissidence about them would, would uh, find their kids' education just gone. That would, that would be that. Yeah. They'd lose their job, lose their telephone, uh, become window washers, boiler stokers and the like. Wow. So there was this sense of a completely new generation coming through when you were there. And you have some really lovely um, uh, little moments there at the beginning. I particularly loved uh, the soldier, Jan. Yeah. Who, who you run into. Can you mention that a little bit? Yeah. I, I, my girlfriend and I went, uh, were there on January 16th, which, was the, which happened to be that night, the anniversary of a, a really tragic event in Prague's history. This was the self-immolation of a young student called Jan Palak, who... Yeah set fire to himself in Wenceslas Square in 1969 after the Soviet invasion in, in protest to rouse Pragas from their apathy against the Soviet invasion. And no one had been allowed to uh, officially commemorate it in all those years, except on this night. This was the first anniversary where people could legally gather and commemorate the death of this yeah. young man. And so we went out close to midnight to where the, near the statue of St Wenceslas, the top of Wenceslas Square, and there was like a, a big wedding cake of melted candle wax and notes mm. and people sort of standing around and two young soldiers were there. They were both, they had to be teenagers and they were both wearing great coats that were too, too, too big for them. Yeah. And they came up to me and Josephine and they said, pivo, pivo, pivo. Now I did know in my check that that means beer. Yeah. And I went, beer, yes, yes. Come mm. and come and drink beer with us. I thought it'd be fun to talk to a couple of soldiers. Yeah. And they said to me, oh, uh, uh, America. And I went, oh no, no, it's Australian. And yeah. he went, ah, Australia, yes. He went, Melbourne, Sydney, <laughs> Brisbane, Adelaide, like that. Yeah. And, I, and I said, wow, you know your geography. And he'd learnt this in school or something and memorised. Yeah. And then he went, oh, Australia. He went, SEDC, SEDC. And then he went, going, Angus, Angus. And then he started playing air guitar in Wenceslas Square, started going, like that and, and yeah. sort of bunny hopping across Wenceslas Square which made my go girlfriend crack up and I went yeah. oh, come and drink beer mm. and then and then there was this other dude who was a bit creepier um <laughs> this bald, bald guy with sort of a comb over standing with a briefcase and he went Carly Minogue Carly <laughs> Minogue lucky 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 nice girl nice girl well, so, so <laughs> Then, he, then they, we, he followed us and the soldiers. He sort of kept his distance. And we, followed, we went back to the bar, the mezzanine bar at the hotel, and started drinking beer. And after two beers, Jan, this young soldier, he, he, was, um, he, he was a bit chickened. And he, and he said to me, he got quite emotional. And he said to me, Richard, we are friends. I said, yes, we are friends. He said, listen to me, please. He said, Australia, 
Czechoslovakia, America, Germany, Poland, one world, please, one world, like that, one world. Yeah. I said, yes, Jan, yes. He said, listen to me, please. One world, one world. And, and he said it again, Richard, Czechoslovakia, Australia, America, Russia. And at that point, the bald guy with the briefcase, Mr. Nice Girl, just leapt up off his chair and went bang on the table and went, not Russia, not Russia. And, he, and then he stormed out. And then Jan just sort of looked at him and went back to me saying, please, one world, one world. And, 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 and to me, that was a kind of a moment because I realized he was getting his future back. He was a soldier on the front line of the Cold War. And a lot of people don't remember it these days, that, but there were really heightened nuclear tensions in the early 1980s. And I, like a lot of people of my age, I never thought I'd live to see 30. I thought we'd all be wiped out. There'd be nuclear annihilation. I couldn't see any way out of it. It felt I, that dire. Yes. Yeah, yes. And so at the end of the Cold War, the Velvet Revolution was, was a moment where young people got their future back. We could look forward to having a future, having a life again. So Prague came to, I guess, symbolise that a little bit for you. Like it's an amazing moment to be in a city that is so old. So I know that you came back reasonably soon after that, actually, to Prague for a second visit and things have changed a little bit. Um, and then when did the idea for the actual book come? I think I've been wanting to or thinking about writing about it, but it took me about 30 years in a way to kind of make sense of what I thought and felt about it. Mm. And I think I, I needed to have that distance from myself as a young man too. That, that gloomy young man that I was, who was gradually sort of turning into an op a much more optimistic person as a result of this. Yeah. To have that distance from my younger self and look back on it with affection, rather, myself at that age as affection, rather than embarrassment for, for how clueless I was or, yeah. or, or you know, unhappy I was or happy or, or whatever. So, so, it, it, so I, maybe I'd always wanted to write something about it, but... It, it was only in the last few years that m all my thoughts about it were starting to cohere, mm. particularly given the moment we live in now, because that was the moment in Prague. It, the Velvet Revolution was the moment when I turned from being, I think, becoming a, from a pessimist to an optimist. Yeah. And now we're in another one of those moments where a lot of vectors are going really badly wrong in the world, really yeah. badly wrong in a major way, politically, environmentally, uh, mm. medically, uh, biologically. Uh, and, and I wanted to recap to that feeling of what it was like to rediscover one's optimism in a bad, out of a bad time. Yeah. And so this led you to returning to Prague to write? Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I for a, um, uh, this is one of the reasons why you should, if you're writing books, you should follow Twitter accounts that are in some way related to the place you're writing about. Yeah. Uh, there was a, I applied for a Prague um, UNESCO City of Literature writer, writer's residency. And they very kindly gave me one uh, for two months to live in, in a Soviet-style apartment uh, on the oh. outskirts of Prague for two months. And, and it was great. Uh, I, I made a whole lot of new friends there. I befriended several uh, Czech authors and filmmakers. And they appear in the book. And I got their stories from them, walked all over the city, day in, day out, day in, day out. And as I sort of learned more about the history of the place, I began to see it in a different way. See a lot of little details that had seemed mm -hmm. mysterious or I'd missed altogether when I was there the first time around. Yeah, and I love the way that you uh, place these details throughout the book. We'll be, you know, caught up in uh, a battle in the 30 Years' War, 
which you've actually cleared up for me a lot, which was great. Thank you very much. That, that part of European history is very confusing. So we're in the sort of 17th century wandering around in the mud and then you'll mention something and it's like a, a relief on the edge of a building or something that you did see when you were there, which pulls us as readers back into that moment that you're actually in Prague. And you were there in 2019, so that's 30 years after the uh, Velvet Revolution. Yes, I was there. I was there again for the for the fiftieth uh, anniversary of the self immolation of Jan Palak. Oh wow! That's, I guess that's what that is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, that was a very different affair than the one I attended in nineteen ninety, because uh, the president wasn't invited, the prime minister wasn't invited of of, Czech, of the Czech Republic. Yeah. Uh, it was held by a pro democracy group. A, a group of uh, called a million moments for democracy who are really concerned that their democracy might be sort of just hacked away and fall away under the pressure of, you know, of ruthless oligarchs and uh, corrupt politicians as it has in Poland and in Hungary. It's still, it's still, still holding up, but I would say no thanks to its president and prime minister currently. So that the, that movement for, that Prague democracy or the Czech democracy that is so prevalent throughout the book too, from any time from the Hussites, well, even earlier probably than the Hussites, because you have uh, Lubasa, who's the, uh, creates uh, Prague. She sounds interesting <laughs> as a kind of like utopian ideal or Garden of Eden, everyone seems to be wandering around in. Um, that idea of a democracy or at least a, um, an organisation of the people seems to be a very big part of this uh, Czech idea of nationalism that they gather to themselves later. They so do. you're saying that's being removed again from the president and the prime minister. The, the current president's a, a race-baiting uh, demagogue, um, yeah. campaigned against Muslim immigration. There's about four Muslims in the whole of the Czech Republic, but they're considered a, you know, a mortal threat, according to him. Yeah. Uh, he's also a guy who joked with Vladimir Putin about how journalists should be liquidated. Uh, but um, the thing about the, the Pragas is Pragas have this, this great prankish sense of humour. Like, they're really funny people. They're forever taking the piss out of power. And a, a group of art terrorists, they call themselves that, yeah. uh, pulled a prank on the current president. Uh, they decided he was getting too close to Vladimir Putin. So they broke into Prague Castle dressed as chimney sweeps, got onto the roof of the presidential palace, took down the presidential flag and replaced it with a gigantic pair of red silk underpants and that was meant to symbolize the current president as a man who has no shame and they even took it like an isis type video of themselves with balaclavas holding yeah. up the underpants um you know do, the, one of the things that led to the outbreak of the velvet revolution in 88 was a group had formed called the society for a merrier present and they were a group of young people who organized a demonstration a military type demonstration over the charles bridge wearing helmets made out of watermelons truncheons uh, made out of salami sticks and holding up blank sheets for banners. And when, yeah. when police came along and confiscated yeah. these blank banners, you know, everyone just fell about laughing. I mean, yeah. th that's what they're like. They, they're, they're forever taking, taking the piss out of power like that. That's what makes Prague the, the true avant-garde surrealist city, I guess. It does, it does. Um, actually, that was another thing that um, I really loved in your book. And I think it, particularly releasing a book that's a travelogue at this time when we can't travel, how does that feel? How does it feel to be sort of releasing something which is about, you know, in a way the, the gloriousness of your, of 
curiosity and interest in other people and other places at a time when we're, you know, somewhat removed from others? Well, I, I sort of, I, I wrote it, not knowing, of course, there was a pandemic coming, but <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote it like, like I tried to, like in the style of the histories that I always enjoyed when I was uh, a teenager. I read a lot of history when I was a teenager and in my 20s. Um, my dad was an autodidact and we had a lot of shelves with history books in them and I read them. And overseas travel was like a, a much rarer thing in the early 80s than, yeah. certainly much, than today. And, you know, when you're a young person, you, you're just aching to leave Australia, you're aching to travel and you, and you worry that you'll, it'll never happen to you. You know, that was a great thing when you, when people, when, when 15, 15 year olds of my generation were worried there'd be a nuclear holocaust before we could ever have sex or get to go to travel to Europe or America. Yeah. That was a, yeah. that was a, that was the, the terrifying thing. Uh, so, so I would read, I, I read a lot of European and American history uh, when at that age, just as a way of getting on the plane before I could get on the plane, yeah. a way of transporting my imagination to these far off places to sort of walk the streets, to be there, to sort of, imbibe the history of a place and get a sense of somewhere that was a long way away from wherever it was I was living at the time. So I hope uh, readers are able to get that same kind of effect where you can just imaginatively travel to a place and not just a, a travel through, through space, of course, but through time as well to experience the deep time of, of the history of the city. And I, you succeed admirably. Thank you. I mean, I, uh, I loved it. Um, I was actually planning on going to Prague this year. So I know that's okay. I've been, I've been now and look, you know, I got to do it without leaving Fitzroy. So that, there you go. But, um, I spent an hour in Prague. That's my, the only time I've spent in Prague. After being told by everyone to go, I spent an hour there at the train station. And when I saw that your book was called The Golden Maze, I thought, I wonder if it's about the train station. Because <laughs> Prague train station is impossible. <laughs> It was a surrealist joke. I spent an hour with a group of several hundred people walking from space to space and looking up and that would never tell you where the train was coming from. It would just tell you where you needed to go to to find out where the train might then go from, if it was actually going to go from there. And so, yeah, reading this actually illuminated that, that train stop experience for me. I've had the same experience in the, in the main train station in, the, in, in Prague. It's, it's a nightmare. Uh, but I, I called it the Golden Maze because because it's an un, it's a, it it struck me particularly in uh, the Velvet Revolution as a very uncanny city, uh, a place that felt felt odd. It it feels like your there's a sense of that that the, the best cities, the the most magical cities, have that that reality gets a bit thin and becomes mm. sort of thin and diaphanous, and something is there around the corner. There's this heightened sense of expectation you can get, particularly on a winter's night when there's no one around. Yeah. Uh, it's harder to get that these days because outside of COVID time, it's been flooded with um, British tourists on stag nights, you know, drinking the cheap beer. But, um, uh, and that's a pretty strange thing for groups of Australians to walk past, drunken yeah. Brits and disdaining them as total bogans, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, we can get uh, that anywhere. <laughs> we can get that anywhere, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but Prague, is, Prague has that odd sense, the, the way the tendril-like passage of its streets mm. and lanes that are lit to be golden at night is, is, is lovely. Uh, when, when I wrote Ghost Empire, uh, it was about Constantinople, and Constantinople was yeah. built to be a mirror of heaven. And there are parts of that city where in the Hagia Sophia, you can feel like heaven is very close. Yeah. Prague is similar. There's something close, but it's not heaven. 
Mm. Well, either. But it's hardly surprising that this is the city from where uh, you get the story of a, of a, of a golem made of river yeah. created by Rabbi Lowe, where the world's first robot is invented mm. well, in a literary sense by Carol yeah. Chapek in his book, R.U.R., robot being a Czech word. Robot is, it was a word coined by the Czech playwright Karol Čapek in the 1920s in his play, because it, robot means forced labour in, in Czech. And of course, it's the city where Franz Kafka wrote Metamorphosis, where Gregor yeah. Samsa wakes up, uh, transformed into a gigantic, well, in English it's cockroach, but it's just, it's more loosely described as vermin in, uh, in the original German. Yeah, I think I prefer vermin to cockroach. I've always yeah, found that yeah. part. But um, I think that is a wonderful sense I get actually through reading your book is you do weave so many stories of the people who have spoken of Prague, who've come from Prague, you know, obviously a, a city of artists, writers, who also seem to see Prague the way you do as something in and of itself, not a city that they live in, but, you know, a, a force of its own as you said, a sort of a diaphanous curtain behind which there is some other type of thing. There's a, there's a, the, you mentioned Labusha, who is the uh, founder, the mythic founder of Prague. Mm. That itself is interesting. I think the fact that it's a woman. Yeah. It's the city of Prague. It's not Romulus and Remus. It's not a man. It's, mm. it's a woman is the mythic founder, this witch princess called Labusha. Who yeah. Has the prophecy. And according to the legend, which was written a thousand years ago, she stood on the edge of a cliff looking over the vault of a river and said, I see a great city, its glory will touch the stars. And then she told her attendants to go down to the forest below on the river and they'd find a clearing where a man would be making the best use of his teeth at midday. And that's where they would found a city. And so the courtiers go down and in the clearing they find three men building a house. Two of them are having their lunch, but the third one is using a saw to hack at a block of wood. And that's the man making the best use of his teeth. Yeah. And they say, what are you making? And he said, I'm making a threshold for a house. Threshold in Czech is Prague, which is where Prague comes from. Prague means threshold. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful, uh, perfectly named city. The idea it's a th yeah. it's been always been seen as an unworld, uh, otherworldly threshold where strange creatures of the imagination uh, slip into, into mm. our world. And it, Patrick Lee Fermer, who wrote that book, their wonderful book, A Time of Gifts, yeah. in the 1930s. And he said he thought that Prague felt like every detail uh, held the tip of uh, inexplicable phantoms. Yeah. Andre Breton came in the mid-1930s. Yeah. And he said it, um, it, was, it was like the, the magic uh, capital of old Europe. He was astonished by Prague's surrealist beauty. So it's, it's often occurred, to, as you say, to a great many visitors who've come to the city in the mm. past. Also to its own inhabitants that seem comfortable with living in that space i mean the people that you talk to and that's what i mean it's what i love about your uh your travelogue history because it is a history of prague in which we learn you know 1400 ish years or not quite that long maybe that long 1400 ish years of history about that yeah, yeah almost yeah about that maybe a little bit more and i think you do a masterful job sort of weaving them all in together um and then interspersing them with obviously these moments that bring you back into the now where you're talking to individual people, where you're telling stories, the way your subjects are also telling stories, the stories of history. Like you I love the, uh, you'll get quite um, carried away as a reader in a uh, story about a, a series of 
somewhat unlikely events and then you'll say at the end, actually, no, no one knows if this happened, but, you know, it could have. And it feels as real as anything else could feel. Um, so did Prague, was it Prague that kind of gave you this way of approaching a travelogue where you could be this chatty? Is, it, is that about the nature of Prague or is that just about the nature of how you wanted to write history? I think I began that style with uh, my first book, Ghost Empire, yeah. Yeah. which uh, was a history of the Eastern Roman Empire, mm. later Roman Empire, or which it was later called Byzantium, written from the point of view of Constantinople, which yeah. was founded as, the, as a new Rome in the yeah. century. And uh, that was, um, I, I, I wanted to, I don't know, I, I, I sort of stumbled onto it. I, I, I think I wrote what I wanted to write about. And I, I put in there the story of me with my four, then 14 year old son going mm. through the city and getting his impressions of it, his, his fresh take on things. Yeah. And also um, enjoying being with him as his father rather than as uh, someone who, he's like a strapping 21 year old now and he's very <laughs> much like, um, you know, we go to the pub together now. That's great. <laughs> but it's a different kind of relationship. Um, uh, he's able to call me out on stuff that might not exactly be true that I tell him now, which is, uh, which is horrible. Um, <laughs> worst thing for storytellers, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Um, well, get in the way of the story. <laughs> So, so that's, I, I sort of just hit on that approach. Mm. It also allowed me to kind of, uh, I, I love folk tales and fairy tales. I, mm. I love uh, putting the folk tales and the myths of a city and a place into, into a story. Uh, they have a certain kind of music to them, I think, yeah. which is a nice thing to sit alongside all that hard history uh, mm. or the history of, um, of, of war and struggle and uh, emperors and everyday people. Well, it expresses, uh, doesn't it, the response to all of those hard bits of history. That's what the folk tales are. They're our response to all of these things. Exactly. And yeah. they also, they reveal the underlying obsessions of the society at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, oh, it's just fascinating. Um, now, I have a lot of questions coming in, so I thought we might, if you're happy, get to some questions from, well, I mean, besides me, I still have lots of questions, but, you know, I'll let other people ask their questions too. Um, so we'll get to that in um, just a second. So if people want to keep pushing through questions, that'd be wonderful. Um, my last one is, I guess, more of a thanks than a question. Uh, when I was travelling last year, because everyone wants a travel story from someone else, don't they? Anyway, and I was in the Prague train station. Before I'd been there, I'd been in Leipzig for a week or so. And the whole time I was in Leipzig, everyone goes, why are you here? And I said, oh, that seemed interesting. And they're like, why aren't you in Prague? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I was going to go to Prague, but I'm here. And everyone, Germans and all of the baristas I met who were all from Prague were like, oh, you have to go to Prague? I said, but you're not in Prague. You're in Leipzig. And they said but you still have to go to Prague so that you know to leave again. <laughs> and so I feel like I finally got to go to Prague. <laughs> I got you out of the train station. That's you the got me out of, Look, and that took a lot of doing. That train station was hard to get out of. Me and these American nurses were very lost for a very long time. <laughs> but I guess the other thing I do in preparation, I think we all often do, is we read about a place we're going to go to. As you said, it's a way of travelling before you get there. And sometimes I like to read something and kind of take a couple of questions that are just in the back of my head that I think maybe the city will answer or the place will answer. So I started reading The Good Soldier, Schweik? Schweik? Yes. yes. Uh, Schweik. That's the German way of saying it. You can say in Czech it's Good Soldier, Schweik. 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 Yeah. I started reading that and I'm like, this is hilarious, but also why is everyone so paranoid? And I thought, oh, when I get there, that'll be explained. 
So you've actually explained to me why everybody in Prague is so paranoid. And that's so fascinating because he's the one who becomes the, the fool, isn't he? That sort of represents the sort of the form of resistance. Yes, the, the clever buffoon. That's the, the Czechs, the, Czech, the, the, the Bohemia, is a, which is one of the provinces. I, I should just explain that the Czech Republic is made up of two provinces, Bohemia and Moravia. And Bohemia is where Prague is. And that's, that's the, the ancient uh, province that, that goes way back to Roman times. Uh, but uh, the Bohemians have this thing where they, they, they're a small nation surrounded by very powerful ones. They have uh, the Germans to the northwest and south, and they have uh, the Russians on the, in the east. And their way of dealing with being invaded and oppressed is to, is to first of all, use humour to take, take the piss. The, the second way to do it is to, be, to act like Schwach. That's, that's, they, they act like they're insanely, absurdly obedient to every command that they want to fulfill 110% and really stupidly, which then completely undoes the whole purpose of the command in the first place. That's how to act like Schweik. Schweik, is, um, Schweik himself is heavily based on Yaroslav Hasek, the author himself, whose life story, which I have in the book, yes, is wilder, wilder than the good soldier Schweik. He is one of the, the greatest buffoons of all time. And uh, some of the stunts he got away with are, are so gloriously brilliant that, yeah. um, uh, that he deserves to be remembered. But the acting like Schweik infuriated the Nazis when they occupied Prague. Uh, yeah. it, it made well, Reinhard no, it the, the blonde beast say, the Reich is not to be mocked. No yeah. more Schweik, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, then, and that's exactly what the Czechs did. Yeah. Um, now, some questions from uh, our wonderful audience. Uh, the first one is actually a question uh, from Chris Gordon, our wonderful overall host, our mediator. When you travel, do you buy tacky gifts and souvenirs? <laughs> Did you buy a Franz Kafka t-shirt? I heard there were Kafka t-shirts. <laughs> oh my God. Look, this is... This, this brings me to coming back to Prague. I knew I was going to see this and I knew it was going to annoy me, but I just tried not to be annoyed by it. Um, I, I was glad to see the end of communism. Uh, they certainly were in Prague in, in the Velvet Revolution. But I kind of missed the little funky shops that were there. Like they had shops that sold nothing but different kinds of mineral water that uh, yeah. were, were sold as medicine, you know, for, for what yeah. I will do. Uh, they had shops that, they had one little gorgeous shop that I adored that sold nothing but bookmarks, ex libris slips, and tiny little, tiny little books with Shakespeare's sonnets written in, in, in Czech. Um, books, uh, shops that sold, there was a shop that sold just chocolate from the Eastern Bloc. It's like chocolate from Hungary, uh, Cuba, and Germany, and, and Hungary. And it had these kind of really old fashioned old yeah. 1950s type wrappers. And I think they'd been in the shop that long because the chocolate, the wrapper looked amazing, but the chocolate was utterly inedible. It was like sawdust, essentially. Ooh, yeah. But now those shops, they're gone. They're, they're, of course, replaced by endless tacky souvenir shops. Yeah. They're like the souvenir shops, you know, we have in, in Australia in, you know, Burke Street Mall, those shops that sell, you know, mass-produced boomerangs, shot glasses with maps of Australia on them, Ugg boots. Um, in Prague, it's like little bottles of absinthe, lined yeah. Rosa dolls, which are Russian rather than Czech. And Franz Kafka tea towels, but not the books. That's no. that, that's infuriating. That so they don't sell, you don't 
get a lot of bookstores full of all of the wonderful Czech writers as much as you get uh, tea towels of Kafka. That's right. They, they, they do have a lot of bookshops, thank God. Yeah, there are specific literature, but yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I can't go around there shaking my fist at all this consumerism right. because the Velvet Revolution was much about um, uh, the dinginess of communism as it was mm-hmm. about political, free, political liberty. So, and, and I, what am I? I'm a foreign traveller too, aren't I? I mean, yeah. I can't shake my fist and go... No. And I mean, some level we all want a Kafka tea towel anyway. Well, we, well, yes, but I did not buy one. You didn't buy one? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, no. Wow, that shows, that shows amazing restraint. That's, that's no. great. <laughs> no. I did get an old Civic Forum pin, though. I found an old Civic, Civic oh. Forum protest movement. I did. Yeah, see, but that, that, that's, like, that's like a good souvenir. That's, Maybe. you know. Um, now... Oh, what was this? Okay, sorry. Uh, on that idea of the Soviet and the old Prague and the Soviet Prague, uh, we have a question from Glenn. Uh, does Richard think the contrast of the brutalist Soviet architecture amplifies the magic of the old city? It's an excellent question. Hmm. In some ways, yes. I stayed in one of those old apartment blocks, the, the, the hmm. Panalaki. They're, they were built to provide modern housing on the outskirts of Prague. And uh, some of them are really run down, and, but most of them are actually not bad. Like the apartment I had was lovely. It was airy and spacious. So every once in a while, communism could get some things right. Yeah. And it was quite well planned. It was right near tram stations. But even they feel eerie at times. They feel sort of airless and haunted at mm. times, those old Soviet blocks. And they're designed, you know, they, they've got the same kind of awful social planning disease that afflicts a lot of the um, uh, Housing Commission apartment blocks in Sydney and Melbourne as well, whereby you build these towers, you bung the, the poor people in there uh, or low-income earning people there. They have no need for cafes or so, uh, wandering through the streets and have casual social, social interaction. Everything's regimented. Um, the, the parks belong to everyone, therefore they belong to no one. You don't see people out and about mingling in those places. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. In the older parts of Prague, you do. And it's, it's the same in Paris as well, of course, you know. Mm. That, that, that was the thing that architects like Le Corbusier in the 1930s wanted to destroy mm. that, that idea that you would wander these medieval streets and, and mm. follow an inefficient path from A to B when you should just get into your car, park right outside the front yeah. of your apartment and just drive there, man, because that's modern, you know. Yes. Uh, but Prague fortunately resisted all that. Prague was not destroyed in the Second World War, and so it's kept that beautiful, weird interior. But yes, at times the Soviet elements of the city do feel haunted. Certainly, the old secret police building, which is called the Stove, Katakana, that's yeah. that's an ugly as hell building on Bartolomeuska Street, and that's it's it's really a rev- it's so ugly, it has its own kind of aesthetic. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it it's sort of it. it it, it it radiates malevolence even today. Yeah. But I mean they keep it. They keep it and now it's a police station, which is a really bad idea. It's just like mm. everyday police now, but they should have just torn the whole thing down, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, actually that brings me to a, another question. Um from uh another one of our audience night, uh would you be able to comment on the current political events happening in the Czech Republic. Sure. I mean, you have a little bit already in saying that there is a bit of a disconnect going on there between the idea of democracy and... 
Um, I, 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 I think the thing to know, I think that's, that's I've, learned, I've come to learn about the old um, former Soviet satellite states like mm. Poland, Hungary, East Germany, uh, Czech Republic uh, and so on is that in many of those states, particularly Poland and Hungary mm. and East Germany, the talented young people have left. Gay people leave. Why would you stick around? Mm. Uh, and when, when you're likely to be persecuted or you, when you're worried about being persecuted, they leave. Uh, people who've earned a medical degree or something like that, mm. talented young people, go and live in, they can go and live in Germany, Western, yeah. Western side of Germany. This has left a lot of those areas um, feeling slightly abandoned. There are all these playgrounds there for the built by the EU because they, they joined the EU. Yeah. It's and then you don't see kids in them, but the Czech Republic's different. The young people haven't left. You don't see large communities of Czech emigres in London or Berlin or wherever. You just don't see that. They've stayed. They've chosen to stay, and they're choosing to defend their democracy by and large too. Yeah. Czech Republic is, has a this similar symptom uh, to a lot of countries in the world at the moment. There's the centre versus the hinterland, the metropolis mm. versus the hinterland. Prague is still very much uh, wanting to uphold the legacy of Václav Havel. It's urban, urbane, educated, liberal, cosmopolitan, multicultural. Most people speak English fluently. And it's, it, the economy is buoyed up by the, uh, the tourist dollar. But beyond there, the old industrial towns, which were making terrible products that were ruining the environment that no one wants or would prepared to pay for, uh, some of them have gone to rack and ruin. And a lot of the people, older people living in those places miss communism. They miss the idea of being poor together. You know, who cares about speaking out the government? Who cares about freedom of speech when you can get cheap beer and sausage? Yeah. So that's going on. And At not the, be left behind, maybe. They're feeling totally left behind. Yeah. yeah. And, and they've got that attitude like a lot of Trump followers have in the United States. Mm -hmm. They just want to shake shit up, man, mm -hmm. to make those up themselves people in the city pay attention to them. And I, it, it's yeah. working. So, so hence Miloš Zeman, the president, who's a largely ceremonial figure. He's the head of state, yeah. head of government. He got, he got re-elected uh, two years ago. Um, the idea that someone like him occupies the, the, the position that Václav Havel, the playwright, once lived in, sort of is, is enormously bothersome. Uh, but that rally I went to, the anniversary of Jan Palak's death, which was held by a million moments for democracy, that was explicitly anti-Zeman and more explicitly anti Andrei Babish, the prime minister, the real power in the land. Yeah. The prime minister is the second richest man in the Czech Republic. He owns a large slab of the Czech media. Uh, there are very strong uh, allegations that he was an informer for the secret police under communism, that he uh, underwent several, had several code names, and was one of those people that was well-placed to uh, take advantage of the privatizations that took place after the fall of communism. So, so Babish is a controversial figure within that country as well. But I think they're going to be okay. I th they still have a strong sense of civic participation. They've had a long history of civic engagement with informal organisations. Mm. There's a lot of what, you know, that awful term, social capital. There's plenty of that yeah. in, the Czech, in Prague, in the Czech Republic. And I think they'll weather this storm, although nothing is certain, as we know. No, no, well, no. But it sounds like, you know, Prague has up until now managed. Yes, they, they're, they're hanging in there. And they've yeah. got a really cool mayor of Prague now. The current yeah. mayor of Prague uh, keeps uh, embarrassing, annoying the Soviet Union. You know, they had all these great yeah. hooray for the Red Army statues, like t Red Army tanks 
on mm. display. And, um, and, and over time, Prague's been getting more playful with that to the fury of the Russians. Like, yeah. they don't want a lot of Prague's just regard the presence of a Soviet tank memorial as an absolute, absolute abomination, given what happened in 1968 uh, with the Soviet invasion. Yeah. So they, they painted it pink. And the sculptor David Cherney put a giant upraised finger coming out of the turret. Yep. And, wow. and yeah, and a day tank too, with all that pink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I love that about the. I love that about Prague. I love their playfulness, their sense of um, uh, taking ta- parodying power is, is a huge part of who they are. Well, it sounds like what we need at the moment. Yes. Thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for talking about it. I am getting the indication that it's time that we have to uh, stop now but thank you so much like it's been a wonderful conversation thank you for taking me to prague in this year that i can't go thank you maria thank you for your lovely questions and thank you to christine and everyone watching it's been lovely chatting thank you what a treat what a treat actually everybody here what an extraordinary monday night that we've managed to have even down here in melbourne in lockdown thank you so much richard thank you so much Mari. absolutely marvelous Hey, I want to point out to each and every one of you that we are so enamoured with Richard's writing. We are so in love with the way that he conveys words and the way that he makes the ordinary something that we want to all see, the way that he speaks to each and every one of us, that we have made his book very cheap. It's very cheap at Reverend's. <laughs> It's an absolute bargain price, and that's because we want all of you to read it. It's that good. Uh, on behalf of Readings, thank you so much, Richard. On behalf of HarperCollins, thank you so much for making yourself available. What a treat. This is not something that happens to Mari and myself every Monday night, does it, Mari? It's no, back, no. It's, it's back to Grand Designs for us right now. That's what we're doing. Yeah, or Escape to the Country Revisited. <laughs> and, and let me just add, Murray, one thing, that Fitzroy is the Prague of Melbourne without a doubt. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. you. Well, it does often feel that way, yes. So, <laughs> uh, thanks. Well, there's um, lots of tea. I'll take that. Different, <laughs> different communists on it. Yeah. Anyway, bless. thank you so much, everybody, for t- joining us. What a treat. To you, Richard, keep writing. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.